This evening I'd like to give a little bit of an overview of the meditative process, the meditative journey. The process of meditation is really an investigation of who we are. It's an investigation of our bodies, investigation of thoughts, of emotions. It's an investigation of the very nature of awareness, of consciousness. The Native American writer, Louise Erdrich, wrote something very beautiful and very apt about this process. She said, those powerful moments of true knowledge, which we paper over with daily life, but every so often, something shatters like ice, and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. And when I read it, it felt like such an apt description of the meditative journey. We fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. As Ralph mentioned last night, in many Asian languages, the word for heart and mind is the same. You know, in English, we have two different words, and so we often separate or create this polarity between heart and mind. It becomes a very different process of exploration when we understand heart and mind to be the same. Our stories are all different. We come from different backgrounds and different cultures. So our personal histories are different. But the nature of the heart-mind is the same in everyone. The nature of pain, the nature of joy, of happiness, of love, of anger, of sadness. These are things that are in common to all human beings. And the great power of meditation is that we begin to see and experience so immediately, you know, and so intuitively, these aspects in all of us, which are in common. And the more deeply we understand ourselves in this regard, the more deeply we explore the nature of our own mind and body, the more deeply we understand everyone else. Meditation is really a systematic way of exploration. It's a systematic way of, of looking inward and of seeing what forces in the mind, what forces in the world, contribute to suffering, and which forces in the mind and which forces in the world contribute to happiness and peace. I first became interested in meditation practice when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. I'd gone to college in New York and I had studied philosophy and then applied to the Peace Corps. It was, this was in the mid-60s, so just, just when it was beginning. And they sent me to Thailand. After I was teaching English in Bangkok, and after about a year there, I started going to one of the monasteries, the temples, right, in Bangkok. They were having discussion groups in Buddhism for Westerners. So I started going, but I was fresh out of college and, you know, filled with filled my mind with philosophy. And so I went to these groups and I just asked endless questions. 
People stopped coming because I went. <laughs> they did. You know, I'm sure you've been in groups with some obnoxious person who just won't shut up. <laughs> well, that was me. So finally, I think it was out of desperation, one of the monks said, I think you should try meditating. I think it was just to get me to be quiet. And at that time, I didn't know anybody who meditated. I mean, there I was, I was quite young, you know, in my early 20s, in the Far East. It was all very exotic and strange, and I thought, great, you know, meditate. And so I, he gave me the very basic instruction, you know, of watching the breath. So I got all this paraphernalia together, my mad and cushions and this and that, you know, and I sit down and I set my alarm clock for five minutes. <laughs> I didn't want to sit too long. It was quite amazing because something happened, something significant happened in those first five minutes, and it wasn't that it was any great enlightenment experience. What happened was, even in that very first initial time, I really saw profoundly that there was a way to look into the mind as well as looking out through it. You know, my whole life had been looking out, whether at other people or through books or studies or whatever, always looking out. And to sit down and to see that I could turn the attention inward, it was really just a turning in place, that was amazing to me, that there was actually a way to do that, a systematic way. Well, after the Peace Corps, I came back to this country and I started practicing by myself and it was really difficult. I was just mixing up a lot of different things. I was watching the breath and focusing on my third eye and doing mantras and anything I had heard at all about meditation, I was just putting into this jumble and I got completely confused. So I realized I needed a teacher. You know, it was very difficult to kind of figure this out by myself. So I went back to India to, to look for a teacher, and after traveling around a bit, I ended up in Bodh Gaya, which is a very small village where the Buddha was enlightened. So it's an important uh, spiritual place. There was somebody there who had just come back from Burma, spent nine, nine years in Burma. His name was uh, Anagarika Munindra. He was my first teacher. And he said something the very first time I met him, that was so uh, capturing of my mind and of my interest because it was so incredibly simple. He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. How else could we understand our minds? You know, there's so, such common sense to it. If we want to understand our minds, remember this is the heart mind. If we want to understand our minds, sit down and observe it. There was nothing to join, there were no dogmas to believe. It was just that very pure practice of paying attention. So in this way we could understand meditation as practicing the art of careful attention, of caring attention, deep attention. It's really the art of listening, practicing our ability to listen. A couple of years ago I read about an interview 
a, with, a reporter with Mother Teresa. And this interviewer asked Mother Teresa what she says when she prays to God. And Mother Teresa replied, I don't say anything, I just listen. So then the interviewer went on and said, well, what does God say to you? And this is now Mother Teresa's pronoun, not mine. She said, he doesn't say anything. He just listens. And if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. And it was just that image. Mother Teresa listens and God listens and the art of prayer is just listening. It's like listening, listening to listening. You know, and in that silence, the truth is revealed. So the first step in this practice, in this journey, the first step in meditation, is calming the mind and collecting the attention. Now, one of the, one of the first insights of insight meditation, which is what this particular kind is called in, in the Pali language, the language the Buddha spoke, it's called vipassana, which means seeing clearly. Vipassana, translated as insight. Well, one of the first insights, which you've all had today, everybody has, has graduated, past the first insight already, because it is the understanding, the realization directly through your own experience of how frequently the mind wanders. Is there anybody who has not seen that? I mean, it's what we see right away. We sit down, we observe our minds, and what do we find? We find how often we're just getting lost, you know, in our thoughts, in our daydreams, and plans and memories and judgments and desires. It's as if we hop on these trains of association. You know, it's kind of this one thought comes and we hop on this train of association and we have no idea at all of where the train is going. We don't know we've hopped on. We don't know where it's going. And then a minute or five minutes or half an hour later, we find ourselves in a whole different station. You know, how did I get here? Well, this is what our mind is doing, as we all can see. You know, we know this now. What's interesting is that most people don't know this about their minds. You know, if, if we went up to somebody on the street, somebody who had not really paid attention and started looking inward, and we asked them, does your mind wander? They might well say, oh no, my mind doesn't wander. No, I know what I'm doing. Because until we really take a look, we're so lost in it, we're not aware of it. So this is a big insight. This is, this is a major step in understanding ourselves. It's somewhat like going to a movie theater, going to the movies. And this is a weird kind of theater where they change the film every 15 seconds. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's our minds. It's tiring. <laughs> but we practice bringing the attention back again and again. Just a very simple exercise. It's like playing the scales and learning, you know, learning a musical instrument. We just take this very simple exercise. Come back to the breath. Come back to the body. Come back to the movement of a step. And as we do that again and again, slowly what happens 
is that the mind actually begins to calm down a bit, begins to get a little more still, a little more concentrated. The thoughts are there, but they get a little less demanding. They're not quite so loud, not, not quite so compulsive. And as this calming down, even at the beginning stages, you know, takes place, there's a, there's a tremendous feeling of inner relaxation. You know, a certain sense of inner ease, because it's such a relief to not have the mind simply uh, racing all the time. There's a spiritual guide from the Christian tradition, and I want to read just this little piece because it shows the universality of this training. Now, what we're doing is not particularly Buddhist or Christian or anything. It's just the training of the mind. So this is, this is from the Christian tradition where it says, if the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. And even if you did nothing in the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back, though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be very well employed. And so this is our practice. This is the universal practice of learning to center the mind, center the attention, to calm the mind. So slowly, through the practice, this begins to happen. And as the mind calms, we begin to feel our bodies in a very uh, direct and immediate way. And this, I think, you've probably, you've had the experience today, as we're sitting quietly and a little less distracted, very often we begin to feel areas of tension and tightness and holding, you know, in the body that we might not have even known we were carrying. But in the stillness, this becomes very obvious. And so at times in meditation, it's really learning to be with pain, with discomfort. We also begin to see the strategies we've developed in our lives for dealing with pain and discomfort. Because here we are sitting and there's no avoiding it. You know, it's here, we're feeling the tension, the holding, the tightness, whatever it may be. And we can see very clearly, okay, how is my mind relating to this? How am I dealing with this? And we each have developed a range of strategies for dealing with pain and discomfort in our lives. Some of the strategies may be skillful, may be helpful. A lot of the strategies are not. They just create more suffering. Just for example, sometimes in the face of pain or discomfort, the mind is filled with fear. We're afraid to feel it. Or there might be avoidance. Or there might be denial. You know, I'm not tense. I don't have any attention. You know, we're carrying so much, but we're not aware of it. We're, we're pretending that it's not there. Or maybe there's self-pity, or maybe there's anger. There are lots of different ways we deal with uncomfortable uh, situations. 
one time when I was practicing in India, I had been, I'd been there for some time, I was about to go on this very long Indian bus ride. And it was like a 17-hour bus ride. And the buses there you know, are small or crowded, or, and I'm pretty tall. And I had a seat. I was really crammed in. And I was just sitting over the crank case. You know, so the, all the fumes of the oil and the bus was rattling. And I knew this was not going to be a fun trip. So when I got on the bus, I decided, OK, I'm going to just be with my breath. I'm going to just stay with my breath and keep all of this out. You know, I don't want to deal with it. OK, so in and out, in and out. So the first half hour, the first hour, I was just staying with my breath, keeping everything out. But after some time, and I gave it a valiant try, but after like an hour and a half or two hours, I found myself getting exhausted. You know, I was so busy trying to keep everything out and just trying to stay with my breath that I was getting more and more tense, more and more tight. And it was at that point that I had a little kind of mini awakening. I realized that my strategy was entirely wrong. You know, in the face of the discomfort, in the face of kind of the painful feelings, instead of trying to keep it all out, which was just locking me into a defensive posture, I realized it would be much more easeful to let everything in. You know, so I let down the defenses, I let down the barriers, and I just, I opened up to the discomfort in the body, I opened up to the bad smells, I opened up to all the vibration and the rattling. And it didn't make it pleasant. It was still unpleasant, but I wasn't fighting it. So I wasn't in that struggle. And the trip went fine. And that was, that was a really good lesson for me. And it really is instructive about the meditation practice. It's like learning a new strategy for dealing with the difficulties that arise, not only in meditation, but in our lives. Instead of keeping them out, can we open to them? Can we let them in? As we do this, as we, as we change our perspective from a defensive one to an opening one, allowing ourselves to feel what's there, it becomes a great healing process. Because we're opening up to what very often we have been carrying unconsciously. I'll give you just one little example of this, and this is in a way, a trivial example, but I think it illustrates the point. I was on a meditation retreat up at our center in Massachusetts, IMS. I was doing a retreat myself. And I was doing walking meditation. And just suddenly, I felt this incredible pain in my shin bone. It was so intense and so sharp, it felt like the bone was coming out. And I was so, <laughs> I kind of stopped and looked down. What is going on here? Of course, the bone was not sticking out. It was just a strong sensation. But right then, just as I was feeling that, I had a memory, an image in my mind of when I was a young boy, and I was on this field in the country, 
running across the field flying a kite, and I was watching the kite, you know, looking behind me, and I ran right into a cement bench, you know, right in the shin. And you, you can imagine, I mean, it really hurt. Well, this was like, I don't know, 40, 30 years before. And it was still that sensation, that experience was held in the body. And then in the course of the meditation, it's like, shh, that emerged, that came up. And it's a way of cleansing, it's a way of healing what we carry, what we hold, just by making the space. Through a careful listening to our bodies, we start to feel the body increasingly as a fluid, fluid energy field rather than something fixed and solid. Now, our usual notion of the body is that it's, right, this, is, this is quite a solid me, which bumps into things. In the practice, as our concentration gets stronger, we start to feel it not as something so solid and so fixed, but just as a, as a flowing energy field. And that itself is very healing. I mean, just imagine looking at the body through a microscope, through a high-power microscope. It would be a whole different world, a whole different reality. And we would experience it in a very different way than we usually do. Well, meditation is like focusing the microscope of our minds. Now, as we get more and more concentrated, we see with much, much greater precision and clarity the deeper nature. You, we could say the microscopic nature. Especially in the beginning of a retreat, People often feel discouraged or impatient, you know, with the painful sensations or uncomfortable sensations that arise, because they are uncomfortable. It's, it's not pleasant. It's helpful to remember, though, that this is common. This is almost everybody goes through this experience. And that it is actually a sign of deepening awareness because we are connecting with what's there, rather than avoiding it, rather than being distracted from it. So these are the first steps. We collect the attention on the breath, on the walking. The mind begins to calm down a little bit, to get a little more centered, settled, not quite such a runaway mind. And then we begin to feel the body more clearly, more directly. From this grounding in the breath and the body, the meditation opens up further, and we'll be doing this tomorrow and Monday morning in the instructions. Grounded in the breath, grounded in the body, we then start looking carefully, observing carefully, the nature of the mind, the workings of the mind, the patterns and tendencies you know, that we have in our thoughts and our emotions, 
we see our likes and our dislikes and our judgment and our comments and the inner commentary. I think it was in the book Zorba the Greek, he called it the, the full catastrophe. You know, and sometimes when we're watching our minds, it's like that. And just as a few examples of patterns that can be so deeply conditioned in us. One that, you know, comes up a lot in people is just the judging, commenting mind. Have you noticed that the mind can have a judgment or comment about everything? And it was standing on line at the supermarket. You know, people in front of us. And all these little, flitting little remarks on it. We don't even know these people. But it doesn't matter. You know, the mind just, the mind just runs with it. On retreat, there's another phenomenon that is illustrative of a lot of our conditioning. We call it the Vipassana romance and the Vipassana vendetta. You know, here you are, you're on retreat, we're all in silence, probably you don't know many of the people here. And yet somehow the mind may, you know, form an attraction to somebody. You see somebody or you even just glimpse them and the mind starts fantasizing. Oh, I'd like to meet that person. <laughs> you know, and then you imagine, you know, after the retreat, maybe meeting and going out and <laughs> getting married and having kids <laughs> and then getting divorced. <laughs> but it's just, the, the mind is just, it's just going. It's just lost in this, lost in this fantasy. On the other side is the Vipassana Vendetta. You know, there's somebody here. You may not even know them. You just can't stand them. <laughs> you don't like the way they walk. You don't like the way they dress. You don't like the way they eat. It's just our minds. So it's helpful to see this so we're not, we're not caught in it. You know, it's not that they're going to go away like that all, all of a sudden. But we can begin to become more aware of it rather than believing it all. You know, even closer to the home, how, how much of our time in relationship, even our close relationships, are really just spent in our projections about people. And we have a lot of projections about how somebody is and how they are. And often our perceptions, I mean, sometimes they're very accurate, of course, but sometimes our perceptions are really off. I'll just share one little story with you. It's, I have a teacher from Burma uh, who first came to this country in 1984. And in fact, he just finished teaching a month up at our new center in Barrie, in Massachusetts. Very strict teacher. He's, he's really old school. And he's, he's 82, 83 years old now. He's like a fierce old Zen master. You know, very uncompromising, very demanding in the practice. So it's quite challenging to practice with him. So this was the first time I had met him in 1984. We were doing a three-month retreat. And it was pretty, it was pretty intense. You know, we were sleeping just four hours a night, seeing, seeing him every day. I hated going in for interviews. I told him once, you know, this is like coming in to see the dentist. 
because he was just so present. <laughs> anyway, I was doing some walking meditation outside, and I glanced up at the window, and I saw him watching me do the walking. So I got very mindful, <laughs> or pretended to be very mindful anyway. You know, walking back and forth, I got really slow and careful, just lift, move, place. So walking back and forth a few times, glance up again, he's still watching me. So again, this is going on for, for quite some time. Finally, I, I, I couldn't understand why he was watching me do the walking for so long. So I looked up and I looked more carefully. I saw it wasn't him at all, it was a lampshade. <laughs> I had created a whole world, <laughs> yeah, and I was living in that world. Well, how often do we do this? I think probably more often than we think. What becomes obvious is that we're not inviting all these thoughts and feelings. You know, we don't, we don't say, okay, come now. They're there. They're coming. But through, through practice, we start to have a clear insight into an essential distinction. And this, this is really a, a very key point. And that is where we see for ourselves the difference in our own experience between when we're lost in a thought and when we're aware that we're thinking. Okay, the thought is still there, but the difference between being lost in it and carried away by it and being aware of it, being aware that we're thinking, those are two completely different worlds. One, we're imprisoned by our thoughts, and the other, we're, we're really abiding in a state of great openness. We've all had this experience. Uh, it's a common experience in one, in one arena. Do you know the feeling of going to the movies and being really absorbed? It's a good movie, it's a good film. And we're really absorbed in the story, caught up in all the emotions of it. And then the movie ends and we walk outside. Do you know that, that moment of, it's like a reality shift where we go from being totally absorbed in the movie and then oh yeah, that was just a movie. It wasn't really happening. Yeah, we were very caught up in it. We probably wouldn't pay the seven bucks or ten bucks if we didn't get caught up. But it's that difference between being lost in the movies of our minds and waking up, realizing, yes, this is just a thought. This is just an image. One of the most interesting aspects of the meditation practice, and this is something that continually fascinates me, is the direct looking at the nature of thought. Not the content, not, not what the particular thought is saying, but the very nature of thought. What is a thought? It's such an amazing phenomenon. 
because when thoughts are unnoticed, they have tremendous power in our lives. They drive our lives. Thoughts are saying, come here, you know, go there, do this, do that. And we're just, we're like puppets following our thoughts when they're unnoticed. When they are noticed, when we're aware of a thought, and this is what's so amazing, we see that the thought itself as a phenomenon, it's little more than nothing. It's just this tiny little, like a little energy blip in the mind. The thought comes and goes, and if we're aware and not caught up in it, it has no power at all. So here's this phenomenon which has tremendous power when it's unnoticed and has no power when we're aware of it. So this is all lives we're talking about. You know, and, and the nature of our minds and how it works. This tremendous freedom, possibility of freedom through the power of awareness because then we can choose which thoughts are helpful, which should I act on, which should I get involved in, which should I just let go. If we're not aware, we don't have the choice. Why is this so important? And it's really of crucial importance. Because very often we're not simply daydreaming, you know, or drifting in our thoughts. Very often in our lives, we and all others are acting these thoughts out, these thoughts and feelings out. When we look at so many places of suffering in the world and in our own lives, what's happening? It's people acting out thoughts and feelings of greed, of fear, of hatred, of ill will. This is what happens when we just act out the thoughts in an unaware way. It can create a lot of suffering in the world, and it does, and we see this. At this stage in our practice, we could understand it really as the strengthening of the quality of self-acceptance. We're all a package of qualities. And when we look into our minds and our hearts, we're, we're a mix. There's a lot of beautiful qualities and wholesome qualities and skillful ones, and a lot that's not so skillful and not so wholesome. The meditation practice is a way of opening to it all, not denying, not pretending, where we really see, we, we open, we look, we have the courage to see what's there. To learn to relax behind them all so we're not berating ourselves, we don't get lost in self-judgment. We accept the fact that they come, we accept the fact that they're there, and with awareness, we have the freedom to choose. What do I act on? What do I don't? But from this quality of acceptance, we're seeing both the wholesome and the unwholesome. We're seeing the whole picture. The mind becomes a lot more spacious. We're just willing to see. And in that spaciousness, we then can make wiser choices. We're not so driven. 
In one way, you could think of it as the difference between responding to things and reacting to things. And normally, when we're just lost in our thoughts and feelings, there's the immediate reaction. You could almost call it the knee-jerk reaction. When there's mindfulness and awareness, then we take in whatever's happening. We're not so caught in our immediate reaction, and then we can really see what's the proper response. What's the wisest response, the kindest response? And very importantly, for the meditation practice and for our lives, we also learn to develop a sense of humor about ourselves. You know, just we see, we see what our minds are doing. And at a certain point, this doesn't always come the first day, but at a certain point, we start to smile. Somebody once came into a meditation interview, and their great insight was, the mind has no pride. It'll do anything, and it does do anything. And when we can see it with humor, you know, with lightness, it really is tremendously helpful for becoming more accepting of ourselves. Know, in the whole package, and also less judgmental of others. You know, because we see they're a package of qualities too. So we hold it all with some humor. There's a line from the poet W.H. Auden, which I really like and expresses this. He said, love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. <laughs> you know, so there's just that acknowledgement of our common predicament. This this is how it is. Can we be aware rather than asleep? Can we be accepting rather than judgmental? From this basic stillness and calm and self-acceptance, which comes through the meditation practice, there's a transforming and purifying process that starts to happen. And it takes different forms. One form is there's a clearing out of this huge storehouse of memories, impressions, just things we've held and collected. You know, as you go on in your meditation, at first, you know, immediate past memories start to come up. But then after some time, memories and images from way from the distant past start, start arising in the mind. Things we didn't even know we remembered. And it might be old movies that we saw or old TV programs. When I, was, when I was practicing in India, I didn't know, you have to be a certain age to remember this, but one of the things that came up for me in, in my meditation were these old, old reruns of Father Knows Best. You know, this old TV program. It was bad the first time. <laughs> and it didn't get any better. But it was in my mind. You know, just as a kid, I had been watching this stuff. Sometimes people on meditation retreats have very vivid dreams. Dreams can get very intense. And much more so than usual. And often with very good recall. Because things are getting stirred up. There is this cleansing happening. Sometimes it's old traumatic memories. 
that come, either ones that were remembered or not previously remembered. It's like we're making the space. When we first started teaching uh, in this country, this was back in the uh, 70s, a friend of mine uh, from California uh, came to one of the retreats, these early retreats. He had been in the Vietnam War. And he told me that, you know, since his time in Vietnam, he had suffered from these horrendous nightmares. Just every night, it was kind of, you know, going through, going through that. Then he came to the retreat. This was a two-week retreat. And it's like every day he was just reliving. You know, all of these images were coming up in his mind. You know, and all the feelings and all the emotion. But he was just with it and with it and with it and with it. And it was amazing. He said, at the end of the two weeks, he no longer had any nightmares. You know, and since then, it's like it had been cleansed, it had been cleansed out through the power of awareness. Not through pushing it down, and not through suppressing, and not through denying, but just that willingness to, okay, let me see it, let me feel it, let me be with it. So there's a tremendous purification process that happens through the power of mindfulness. It's not anybody doing this for us. It's our own power of awareness. You know, in Buddhism, the goal is often talked about as enlightenment or awakening. Well, sometimes when I hear the word enlightenment, I think of it as just getting lighter. Lighter and lighter and lighter. It's emptying out. It's just emptying out all the stuff that we're carrying, all the tensions, all the knots, all the holdings. Through the practice, and as our mind gets more concentrated and collected, we also begin to explore the nature of consciousness itself. And this is really the great mystery of our lives. What is awareness? Who is it that's knowing all this stuff? What is the nature of knowing? What is the nature of consciousness? This thing which we most take to be who we are. You know, there's so many books now written about the brain and the mind, and I have a friend who's studying neuroscience, and I saw one of his textbooks, and it was this really thick textbook. I opened it, I did not understand a single paragraph. <laughs> it was just, it was, I was in awe of him, you know, that he was studying this and remembering and learning it. And then I was also so grateful for the realization that we can come to understand the nature of consciousness, the nature of awareness, the nature of our minds, directly and immediately by going in. We can rest, we can reside in that experience, in that exploration. And this becomes really fascinating. It's getting to the very core of our life and who we are. So as we settle in this exploration of our bodies, our minds, the nature of thought, and how unnoticed thoughts are so powerful, 
And when they are aware, we see that there's not much to them. Exploring the nature of emotion, the nature of awareness itself. As we're observing carefully, as we learn, and it's a practice. It's not that some people have some gift and others don't. It's just a practice. It's like learning anything else. We practice this training in attention. We become less and less caught up in our stories, kind of the, the personal stories about ourselves, and we become increasingly aware of the process of change. We are really seeing directly for ourselves, not theoretically, we're seeing moment to moment that everything is coming and going. And we see this is true on every level of experience. We can look at the most macroscopic, you know, the galaxies and the stars or whatever, down to the microscopic and everything in between. It's all in a process of change. We look at our own lives, you know, our changing bodies, our changing relationships, changing situation in the world. These changes are not a mistake. You know, I think so often we go through our lives and we're looking for stability, we're looking for security, we want things to stay the same way. But that's not how things are, it's not the Dharma. And when we look, when we're just paying attention, again, it's not through some belief system, it's through our own experience. We just internalize this understanding that conditions are always changing. Sometimes to our liking, sometimes not to our liking. Some years ago, I was teaching this retreat. It was, it was a retreat also for people of color at Vallecitos, the, the wilderness place I mentioned yesterday in New Mexico. And after the retreat, we, we all went for a hike along the river, and it had just rained. And in walking back, I slipped on a rock, and I hyperextended my knee. And I knew something was not good, but I walked back. And then that night, I was giving the Dharma talk, and I sat down, I sat cross-legged. And I had the thought before I started, mm, you should sit in the chair. But I didn't listen to it. So I sat for an hour giving the talk. I couldn't get up. You know, the, somebody better carry me back to where I was staying. And that whole night, I mean, my knee was, really did a number on it. But I was watching my mind go back and forth between two tracks that night. Because I had a busy summer schedule ahead, you know, a lot of traveling. And, and so one track was a lot of self-recrimination. You know, how could I be so stupid? And why didn't I pay more attention? Just on and on like that. And then the other track was, things happen. This is just the nature of things. Conditions are always changing. So there's, there's this Goldstein law of practice, which I'll be happy to share with you. If it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> it's like there's always something. Why? Because conditions change. They don't stay the same. So if we can really open to this, then we can flow and respond appropriately to the changing conditions, rather than have the mind get reactive and suffer. 
the more clearly we see the truth of change, the less we cling, the less we grasp at things staying the same way. And the less we grasp, the less we suffer. Now, this is the basic fundamental teaching. But I want to clarify just one point, because this, this can be easily misunderstood. And it's to understand the difference between non-attachment and detachment. Because sometimes people hear these teachings about not clinging, not grasping, being detached. And it doesn't sound that appealing. It sounds flat. You know, you're supposed to go through life in this very flat, detached way. That's not what this is. Detachment implies a separation, implies a kind of indifference, a pulling back. That's detachment. Non-attachment is being totally engaged, totally responsive, totally present in experience, but without holding on. Do you see the difference? It's a very different mind state. Detachment is one of indifference and pulling back. Non-attachment is wide open. It's receptive to everything, but holding on to nothing. So this is a very vital, open, free place of mind. So we understand meditation as the practice of awareness, the practice, the training in mindfulness. We see how often our minds wander, and we simply train it, come back to the simplicity of the breath, the simplicity of a step. It's not complicated. It's not easy to do, but it's not complicated. We just have to keep coming back, keep training again and again. And as we do that, the mind calms, it settles. As it settles, we feel our bodies more completely. We actually start inhabiting our bodies, living in our bodies, and we feel it, we open to it. We become more aware of our thoughts and emotions and less caught up in the habituated patterns. Now, through the awareness, we can see what's going on and make wiser choices. We'll see what leads to happiness, what leads to peace, what leads to more suffering. We realize the truth of impermanence more immediately, more personally. Not, not just as a philosophic abstraction, but something that we're really living. We're living in this truth of impermanence. And from that understanding, we can ask one fundamental question. What is truly important in our lives? given the truth of change. You know, as an exercise, this is, this is like a, a, think of it as a meditative exercise. If you imagine, for example, yourself on your deathbed, and really, really imagine it. We give a little leeway here because we can imagine it in bed. You know, so, okay, so that's a little comfort there. But, but really, we're dying. From that perspective, in looking back at our lives, what would we have wanted to accomplish? What is a value? What is important from that perspective? 
because that is really highlighting the transitory changing nature of all our experience. And we will all die. But the key is to ask this question now, not wait until then. Because if we ask the question now, then we can make wise choices in our lives. We can really accomplish what we value. And this whole journey of understanding, of increased awareness, increased mindfulness, this art of listening deeply, our whole spiritual journey can be held in the understanding that our practice and our lives are not for ourselves alone. And in Buddhism, this, this understanding is called bodhicitta. Bodhi means wisdom or awakening. Jitta means heart-mind. So it's that heart-mind of awakening which is the motivation that our practice and our lives be for the benefit not only of ourselves, but for all beings. And so we plant that seed. We just plant that seed in ourselves in a very humble way. It's not that we you know, have these grandiose visions of becoming a saint. Uh, just in a very humble way, we nurture that aspiration. And may my life, may my meditation, be for the welfare and benefit of all beings. So that then becomes the foundation, the root of all we do. I'd like to close with just a few words from the Dalai Lama, who will actually be in New York uh, in September, and he's going to be doing a public talk in Central Park, uh, if you have the opportunity, and he is a really wonderful being. And it would be a great, a great experience uh, if you'd like to go. He wrote, we are visitors on this planet. We are here for 90, 100 years at the very most. During that period, we must try to do something good and something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others share that peace. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal and the true meaning of life. Let's just sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.